This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Uh, if, if you would, uh, would you turn with me to, to the 16th chapter of Matthew? Uh, we'll, we'll read the, uh, the same scripture reading that we, uh, that we read last week. Uh, we'll start in verse 13 and read down through verse 20. Matthew 16, verse 13. Uh, yeah, would you stand? Reading about the one foundation. <laughs> when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my, my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We love you this morning. We pray, Lord, that you have your way here. Not only, uh, Lord, in the order of service, but in our hearts. Lord, use Your Word, we pray, to cleanse us, to sanctify us, to increase our knowledge and understanding of You so that our hearts are drawn to You ever closer, so that our lives are changed. Lord, so that we, we may carry the, the scent of Your glory, reflect Your glory and honor in all that we do. Lord, we know that's only, only possible through You working in us. So we pray, Lord, Bring it about by Your power. And we thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. This passage um, that we're looking at this morning has a whole history of uh, controversy behind it. Um, I'm not going to deal with all that. I'm, I'm just going to try to um, 
give you what I think is, you know, I mean, I may mention some of the other things, but I'm going to try to give you basically just what I think is the, the proper interpretation here. But it does have a, a long history behind it of, uh, of uh, different ideas and different debates. And uh, again, I think the, the most important thing is, is what the Lord is actually saying here. One reason I asked Zachary to uh, start again where, where we read last week is because this is, is one unit, basically. And I just wanted to, to remind us where we are contextually. Um, as far as subject matter, we're talking about the identity of Christ here. And I'm, I'm going to primarily focus in this morning on verses 18 and 19. That's probably all we're going to cover. And, and again, we're not going to cover that fully. Um, but uh, these two verses, there's just a, a lot here. Um, again, historically and, and just in terms of what Jesus is saying in, in this passage. But the context, again, is His identity. Um, we, we've been really looking at that all along. And Matthew has, has been bringing out from the start uh, who Jesus is. He's been focus, focusing in on His person and His ministry. He starts the Gospel by making it known to us right up front that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Anointed One, the Messiah. Um, and then that is, is shown to us through His, his works and also through his, his teaching, what He says. It's demonstrated in His power and, and authority over, uh, over nature, uh, over demons, over sickness and disease. Uh, and now we, we get to um, the end of this, this section with this question. Who do people say that I am? And that's the all-important question. Who do, who do you say that Jesus is? So after He's done all of these things, after Matthew has recorded all of these works and all of these sayings of Jesus, He brings us to this point where Jesus asks, who do, who do people say that I am? It's, it's kind of like saying it at the end, what's, what's the conclusion? I, I have shown who I am, but, but what's the conclusion? Who do people say that I am. And then he, as we noted last week, he makes it more personal and says, Who do you say that I am? Well, last week we looked at uh, Peter's response. And uh, again, this is going to be uh, important for understanding the section we're in this morning. Um, but Peter's response is correctly, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus points out to Peter, uh, you, you don't know this on your own. <laughs> you, you didn't get this from a self-help book. You, did, you didn't get this by, by uh, you know, meditating on your inner being or your inner light or whatever it is. Um, this is revelation from God. What is the truth about Christ? The, the truth about who Jesus is, is revelation from God. It is divinely revealed. That is opened up like the, like the curtains open at the beginning of a play or like when a, when a statue is presented um, in a public square or something and they, they lift the veil. It's an unveiling, a revelation. It's, a, it's an unveiling and a revelation that takes place in the heart of every believer. Not just... Peter, 
but every believer in the church then and in the church ever since then and in the church now and in the church that will be. Um, this is divinely imparted information about the identity of Christ. So Jesus says, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, here's where we pick up this morning. Jesus continues. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Again, noting that this, uh, the context here is, is his identity. He is the Christ. He was the Christ. He is the Christ. So, just a few things here in these two verses. Um, what, does, what does it mean for us, for the church? And I'll get to that word in a moment, uh, because this is, the, this is the first time in the New Testament this word church is used. It's significant. Um, but what does it mean for us that Jesus is the Christ? Well, <laughs> it means a lot. It has direct implications Direct impact on, on uh, who we are and what we're about, um, our life in this world. Um, so, we're just going to do what these two verses do, talk a little bit about the church. First of all, the certainty of the church. Verse 18, I say to you, that is to Peter, that you are Peter. Now, that may sound like Jesus is stating the obvious here. What's his, what's his point? Well, if you remember, Jesus renamed Peter. Um, what was Peter's name? Tells us in the text. Simon. Yeah, that's right. Simon. Simon, son of John. Um, and early on, in, in fact, it's recorded in John 142, Jesus said to him, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. Or John, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Now, Cephas is the Aramaic, and that, that is probably what they spoke. One thing that I think backs that up is you know, the very fact that it's recorded. Even though this is written in Greek, um, Jesus says here, um, you shall be called Cephas. He uses the Aramaic. So that's probably what they were actually speaking. Um, so, Cephas is the Aramaic form. The, the Greek form is Petros. And that's where we get the name Peter. Petros. It means a rock. Not I-R-A-Q, but A-R-O-C-K. A rock. A stone. Simply that. Um, well, what's the significance of that? Well, if you if you think about... Peter's personality, um, he, he wasn't the most solid guy. I mean, he's, he's probably 
one of those kind of people that, that you would just like. He, he comes across that way. And he's outspoken. He's not shy. But he's not, he's not the most solid. And even at the end of Jesus' ministry, we find Peter saying, uh, you know, I'll die with you. If, if everybody else forsakes you, I'll never forsake you. And what does he do? He denies the Lord. Denies the Lord three times on the night of Jesus' arrest. So he's, he's kind of unstable, wishy-washy, we might say. And yet, right up front when Jesus meets him, he says, I'm, I'm going to rename you. Your name is going to be Rock. And names in the Bible mean something. It's not just because Jesus liked the sound of it better. N- names reflect character or purpose. So, for example, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of many nations, because that's what God was going to do with Abraham, make him the father of many nations. When, when Jacob wrestled with God, God changed his name to Israel, one who wrestles with God. Names mean something in the Bible. And so Jesus is taking this person, and I don't know about for you, but this is great encouragement for me. But He's taking this person who's unstable and saying, you're a rock. You know, not you rock, man, but but you're a rock, meaning that He's going to sure him up. He's going to make him a solid foundation. He's going to take somebody whose personality is like shifting sand and turn them into granite or bedrock. It's a prophetic word in name. And he reminds him of that here. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. That is the revelation concerning Jesus' character. But my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, you say to me, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's, he's, he's giving a, a confession concerning Jesus' identity. You say to me, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now I say to you, you are a rock. How encouraging is that coming from the Lord? <laughs> you are rock, Peter, Petros. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, that's quite a statement. Now, let me just briefly say this. Here's where some of the controversy comes in. Um, and boy, this really is just going to be uh, scratching the surface very, very lightly. But uh, as most of you probably already know, um, the, the Roman Catholic Church consider, considers Peter to have been the first pope. <laughs> and, and this is one of their primary passages they would go to. Here, Jesus is giving Peter unique authority. He calls him the rock, the very foundation upon which 
the church is built. But since Peter is mortal, he's not, he's not going to uh, live forever in, in a fleshly sense. He's not going to be around the whole church age, right? So there has to be a succession. So Peter's the first pope until he dies, and then that is passed on. Down the line, all the way up to today, Pope Benedict in Rome considers himself the direct successor of Peter. That is, he, he, they, the Roman Catholics, believe he sits in that same office, that same chair, cathedra, um, as Christ's vicar, supreme representative here on earth. Well, without going into a, a great deal of explanation, obviously, uh, Protestants, non-Catholics, we, we, we don't, non-Roman Catholics, we don't accept that idea. And there has been controversy um, th- pretty much throughout the, the uh, well, uh, church age. Uh, since, since this concept came about, uh, there, there has been uh, disagreement over it. In fact, in, uh, in, in 1050, the, uh, what was known as the church split, and that's where essentially the Roman Catholic Church was born as the Church of the West and, and, and the Church of the East being uh, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and so forth. So they, they split over that in about 1050. And then, of course, in the Protestant Reformation, um, various groups broke off based upon these kinds of dis- disagreements. This, this one in particular was not the central one. Uh, justification was in the Reformation. It was all about how are we justified. But this was, uh, uh, nevertheless, a major point of dispute. We reject the idea that the Pope is the supreme leader of the church on earth, that he has authority over the whole universal church. And we reject the idea, and this is one reason we reject that idea, because we reject the idea that Peter was the first Pope. It's just not taught in the Scripture. Well, having said all that, what is Jesus talking about then? Let's look again at what He says for a minute. I say to you that you are Peter. Now, let me, let me say this. Now, I've looked at this. I've looked. The, the pronouns are singular. What I'm saying is, obviously, He's talking to Peter. If, if, if we, in my view, if we want to get around that, there, there's no way around it. So, uh, I think it would be wrong, for example, to say, well, he's just meaning all the disciples here or something like that. In a, in a sense, and I'll get to that in a moment, but, uh, but specifically right here, he's talking to Peter. Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are Petros, rock, or it could be translated a rock. You are a rock. But either way, he's talking about Peter. This is what he named him. You are Petros. You. It's a singular you. You, Peter, are Petros. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, there, there's a distinction... And I know I'm, I'm being a little bit technical here, but it's important for the explanation. There's a distinction here in the, in the word Peter, which means rock, and the word rock, on this rock. The word Peter is Petros. Literally, it means a, a rock or a stone, like you might 
uh, like Jordan likes to collect. <laughs> if we if we didn't uh, control her, our whole driveway would be moved into her bedroom. I mean, she likes to pick up rocks and and collect them and hide them. But you know, th- so that's Petros. Just doesn't necessarily matter how big, you know, but just a just a rock, a stone, like you might trip over or something. Petros. But the word Petra is what's translated rock here, on this rock, on this Petra. I will build my church. That's that's the idea of a of a cliff or, you know, a, a, a mountain type rock. So we would say uh, you're standing and looking at the Grand Canyon and, and you look out there and there's all these rocks. When well, We call them rocks, but the things are enormous. And they, they've even named them. Uh, but, you know, they're huge. And when I say huge, I mean like bigger than, you know, mountain size, bigger than any buildings or anything like that. That kind of rock is, is what Petra is. So there is a distinction in the words here and that's, that's how a lot of people argue against the Roman Catholic idea. And I'm not totally ruling this out, but I just want to mention a couple of things. So a lot of people argue against it this way. I mean, I've heard it done, heard it done, heard it done, and it's never been very convincing to me. Um, but they say, well, yeah, Jesus says, you are Peter, you're, you're a stone, you're a little pebble. But on this rock, on this mountain, on this cliff... I'm going to build my church. So, they, so everybody says, there's, he's obviously not talking about Peter when he says on this rock, because now he's using a different word with a different definition. Yes, he is. I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, again, a distinction to be made. Um, but but um, he's still face-to-face with Peter, talking to Peter, and he's still using a variation of the word rock. So I don't, I don't think we can totally remove it from Peter. In other words, he may be saying something like, you know, you're a rock. I already told you, Simon, son of John, that I'm going to call you a rock. And now what I'm going to do, and I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but just for explanation. But now what I'm going to do is make you a foundation stone and build my church on it. Now all I'm suggesting is that that's a possibility. So then, Peter is the head of the church. No? <laughs> I think that would be a wrong conclusion. Let me, let me try to explain here. Peter, it's obvious when you, when you read the Gospels, when you read the book of Acts, at least through chapter 10 and, and uh, uh, 10 and 11, through chapter 11, Peter is undisputably uh, a leader among leaders. I mean, you have first of all, you have the twelve out of all the hundreds of disciples at the beginning of the church. There was 120 in the upper room in Acts two. Out of all out of all the uh, dozens or hundreds of disciples, you have the twelve who were in a more intimate relationship with Christ. And out of the twelve. You have even another group that was even more intimate with Christ, Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers, the sons of thunder, they're called. Peter, James, and John were were a threesome within the twelve who were even closer to Jesus. 
But then there's even different relationships there. John, all the way through his gospel, refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And he seemed to have a really special relationship with Christ. He was sitting or, or reclining next to Jesus at the Lord's, uh, the Last Supper, rather. But then Peter also, there's, there's Peter, and Peter's just always out front. Again, all the way through the Gospels, into the book of Acts, Jesus says, you're going to, to the disciples, you're going to take the Gospel to the world. It's, first, you're going to cover Jerusalem, Judea. Then you're going to go to Samaria. Then you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the world. And who does that play out with initially? Well, the, the Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all of the disciples. Peter stands up and gives the first gospel presentation. And then Philip goes down and takes the gospel to the Samaritans, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit until Peter and James, I believe it is, come down and pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And then they receive the Holy Spirit. So Peter is instrumental in, in getting the gospel to the Samaritans. First to the Jerusalem, day of Pentecost, then to the Samaritans in Acts, Acts 8. And then, who takes the gospel to the Gentiles, the world? You say, well, Paul. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. That's true. But initially, it was Peter. In Acts 10, God, through Peter, took the gospel to Cornelius, to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. So Peter is just out front in the lead all the way through. And I think Jesus is pointing out a unique role here for Peter. However, uh, not to the extreme the Roman Catholic Church goes. And let me, let me try to explain that. And I'll come to that in a moment. Let's go to the next phrase. I say to you, you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. On this rock, I will build my church. Now, here's what I was referring to, the certainty of the church. Jesus makes it clear. He's going to have a church. And He says, I will build it. It's, I, I, I think it's reasonable to say here, he, he is referring to Peter as the foundation. Upon this rock I will build my church. I think that is a reference to Peter. Not Peter alone. And again, I'll try to explain that as I go. Although he is talking specifically to him here. Um, I, I, it has two aspects. Uh, it, it, it plays out in the person of Peter in the way that I just described. Peter preaches first on the day of Pentecost. Peter uh, prays for the first Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. Peter takes uh, the gospel to the Gentile. So, so yes, in a, in a very real sense, he is uniquely, you could say, had a unique role as uh, uh, part of the foundation of the church. Um, but then there's also a way in which these things are true of the other apostles. Uh, for example... That is, meaning as the foundation of the church is also true of other apostles. For example, they too had the authority, same authority that Peter had as an apostle, 
Um, though he had unique function, there is equality in authority. There's equality among them. They too wrote Scripture. Many of them did. Um, so, they were instrumental as a foundational part of the church. In fact, in Ephesians 2.20, Paul says this, uh, speaking of the church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. So, in, in that analogy in Ephesians 2.20, Paul says the apostles and prophets are the foundation. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Now, understand, these are just... These are not contradictory. These are just different analogies, different ways of, of uh, viewing the church. Now, here Jesus is saying, Peter's the foundation, and I think the rest of the apostles, Ephesians 2.20. But Jesus, in, in His own analogy, Jesus is the builder. <laughs> he, he's totally... In this analogy, he's totally apart and superior to the, to the house, to the structure. He's the builder. On this rock, I will build. The church will be built, and it's going to be built on this foundation. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So there's the certainty of the church. The church will be built. Jesus is the builder. He's going to... Uh, or he does ensure that it's done. I will build my church on this rock, on this foundation, on this Petra. Secondly, there's the victory of the church promised here in the verse I just read. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. What's Jesus saying there? First, first of all, first point was the church is going to happen. I will build it. Now, Jesus is saying it's going to be victorious. It's going to persevere. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, I think, again, primarily he's talking about the church. But there's a, an extent to which this is applicable to every believer. It's like we were talking about in Sunday school this morning. We are assured victory through faith in Jesus Christ. Because the church itself is going to be victorious. And we're members of the church. Living stones, Peter says. So, Jer so Jesus says, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Um, what does he mean by that? It almost sounds like and, and boy, this is the way I took it for years and years and years. It, it sounds like we're under attack by the gates of hell. And Jesus is saying, the gates of, don't worry, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. Well, now that, that concept is, is true. We're under attack. Uh, that's why we're, we're called the church militants. Uh, I made a similar mention of that in one of the songs we were singing earlier. The church militant doesn't mean that we're taking up arms and going out and killing people. It just means that as long as we're in this world, we have battles. We're under attack and we fight spiritually, not with carnal weapons. We're the church militant as long as we're in this world. But 
if you were going to make an analogy of a weapon, what would you use? I mean, wouldn't you use something like a sword? Or in our day, you you know, a bomb, machine gun, something. You wouldn't use gates. Gates aren't a weapon. Jesus says the gates of hell, Hades, and Hades is, is the literal rendering. That's, that's the Greek word um, just brought over into English. It's not, not hell in the sense we think of hell. Um, Hades is, is, is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Sheol. It just means the place of the dead. Everybody goes to Hades. It's, it's, it's not hell, like, like a place of torment. Um, it, it's, just, it's just the place of the dead. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, I tell you, gates aren't weapons. What are gates used for? Keep something in or out. Exactly. Exactly. We've got a gate on our fence because, uh, you know, we just got a little dog and, and, uh, if, uh, pretty good side, you know, pretty good fence all the way around the front yard. It, it, without the gate, the fence would be useless. The dog would <laughs> go, she's not the brightest candle on the menorah, but she, she would figure out that if there was no gate there, she could go through it. The gate keeps her in. The gates of Hades, it's just a picture of death keeping its grip on us, keeping us confined. What, what Jesus is saying is, death is not going to be able to keep the church in hold. He, he's promising victory over death. Victory over death. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. By implication, you know, we have here the teaching of the resurrection. Just like Jesus could not be held, but in His case, it was because of His own sinlessness. In our case, we cannot be held by death either because of His sinlessness and His work of redemption. So, I will build my church on this rock And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We have promise of victory. The certainty of the church, the church will be. Jesus says He's going to build it, but we've got 2,000 years of history now to look back and see that He did exactly what He said He would do. And He's not finished yet. And then the victory of the church. Jesus promises victory over death. The church cannot be held by death. And I will, verse 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Here's the authority of the church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We talked about this some time ago um, when we were going through church discipline. Um, because Jesus makes a, a very, very similar statement in Matthew 18:18, 18, 18, where he is specifically talking about church discipline. 
Um, let me just read that real quick. Matthew 18, 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I, I need to say one thing about the, the, the grammatical construction of both of those places. Verse 19 here, and verse 18 in chapter 18. <clears throat> Usually in the Greek, you have your, your, your tenses are, are communicated by spelling, where, where we have to add words. So if I, I say, uh, if, if I'm going to say future tense that I'm, that I'm going to drive, see, I have to put a word like gonna, or I have to say will. I will drive, and that makes it future tense. But in the Greek, they just do it with spelling. You can tell by the spelling of the word, whether it's... Uh, an aorist, which is basically a past tense, or, uh, you know, whether it's future tense or, or whatever the tense is, you can tell basically by the spelling. But in both of these verses, there's a special construction used where a to be verb is put together with a participle. To, to do something very strange to, to us, because um, we don't have it in English. So it would be communicated something like this, if, if you were to try to translate it literally. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. That's a paraphrastic future tense. Paraphrastic, it's a perfect future tense, which means something that happened with abiding results. Jesus used the perfect tense when He said on the cross, It is finished. He's talking about something that is done and yet has abiding results. It's not, it's not just done and over with back there in the past. It's completed with an with a ongoing effect. That's the, that's the tense Jesus used when he, was, when he said it is finished on the cross, talking about our redemption. It is finished. It's completed and it has everlasting effect. An everlasting effect. Ongoing results. So the idea here is something that's been done, but there's a continuing effect or process. So when the church in time exercises its authority at some point in time, whatever you bind, that is the church, whatever you bind on earth, will have been bound in heaven. The church is just living out what God has already done and decreed in eternity. Now, I know, that's, that's a lot, isn't it? And, it? and it says a lot about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God because Jesus uses that same construction when He's talking about church discipline. So, when you bind or loose... Bind somebody in the sense of, of, of church discipline or release them from it. Jesus is saying what you're doing is what has already been done in heaven. Whatever you bind, whatever you loose will have been bound or will have been loosed in heaven. So, he's speaking here, I think, about two things. And, and, and uh, the first of all is, he, he says clearly, I will give you... Again, he's talking to Peter, but I think by implication uh, to the rest of us. I'll, I'll try to explain that momentarily before we wrap up. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So, so he's talking about access to the kingdom. The church has the authority. Now think about this carefully. Do, do we say that the church has authority to grant access to the kingdom? Well, it sounds like, doesn't it? I will give you the, the keys of the kingdom. So whatever you bind on earth may be bound in heaven or will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loose in heaven. And again, this is where we clash with Roman Catholicism who would, would, say, uh, would take it in that vein. But I, I think that's incorrect. Um, I think what he's talking about here is the power of declaration. In other words, I, I don't have the power to forgive somebody of sins. That is, to loose them. Only God has that power. But what I do have, what we all have as Christians, based upon the authority of God's Word, is the power to declare forgiveness of sins. So we loose in that sense. Or bind, retain. Jesus uses, uh, again, the same wording over in John. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. How do we have the power to retain sin? Declaratively. In other words, we, we can tell people, based upon the authority of God's Word, if you believe the Gospel, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And we can say that with the authority of God's Word. Or, we can say to unbelievers, if you refuse to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if you refuse to believe on Him as Lord and Savior, then your sins are retained. You are doomed. And we have the authority, based upon God's Word, to make that declaration. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I will give you the keys of the kingdom so you can declare forgiveness of sins. That is, access to the kingdom through uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. And also, I think it's a reference to the uh, church discipline. And, and I'm not going to take time to go through that, but I'm getting that from Matthew 18, where he uses the same language. And here he's talking about church, assembly. That's uh, verse 18. I will build my church. And there he's talking about uh, specifically how sins are to be dealt with in the church in the context of the assembly. So I think there's also an allusion here to, uh, uh, in, in the binding and loosing, I think it's an allusion to discipline, church discipline. All right, now let me say this in closing. And pray for the Lord's help to tie this together here. I think what Peter is, is saying to Jesus, to, uh, what Jesus is saying to Peter rather, Peter, you're a rock. You say to me, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm telling you, you're a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, yes, he's speaking that to Peter. But what's behind that? In other words, why is he saying that to Peter? Is it because he's, because he's putting Peter in the office of the first pope? I don't think so. He's saying that to Peter because of Peter's confession. And I think that's what's really the focus here. The identity of Christ. Because that's, that's what we have in verse 16. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That, that sparked this response by Jesus. And that's also how Matthew closes it out in verse 20. 
He commanded the disciples that they should tell no one that He was Jesus the Christ. The Christ, the Anointed One. That's the issue here. And so, if I can just kind of uh, tie it together this way and sum it up, again, with, with some paraphrasing, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. This is God-given, divine revelation. What is? What is the revelation? The identity of Christ. Peter, you say that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. You got that from the Father. Got what from the Father? The truth. The truth about Jesus. And so I say to you, Peter... On this rock, which I think may be a reference to the truth that Peter has communicated. Now, I've looked at it that way for a long time, and it just seemed unconvincing to me. But I was looking at it this week, and and, and there's there's one other little... Um, Added pronoun here. It's, it's this, the rock. And on this, the rock, the cliff, the foundation stone, on this, the rock, I will build my church. And that this is up at the front part of that statement, which usually indicates emphasis. Peter, you're a rock, and on this, the rock, I will build my church. Well, yes, in one sense, I think it's okay to say he's referring to Peter and also the other apostles, because again, in Ephesians 2.20, we're told that they're the foundation of the church. So there's one sense in which that analogy works, and it's true. But again, what is at issue in this context is the identity of Christ. And that is what Peter has just expressed correctly. And I think that is what Jesus is talking about as being the foundation of the church. The truth about His identity. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is saying, yes, Peter, and I'm going to build my church, my people, the people that I call out from this world are going to be built on that truth. That's going to be the foundation for everything I do in the manifestation of God's kingdom in this world, which we know as the church. And I will give you, or verse 18 rather, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That word it, actually, uh, I think it's correct, to, 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 the way we normally take it, that it, it refers to the church. The gates of hell shall not, uh, it's, it's in the feminine, so it could be the gates of hell shall not uh, prevail against her. Um, but again, it doesn't have to denote, the feminine grammatically does not have to denote gender, uh, uh, you know, like male or female. So it could refer to the it there, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, could refer to, again, the foundational statement that Peter has made. You're the Christ. Son of the living God. It's probably, I mean, I'm just throwing that out, but it's probably more correct to take it the way we normally do, which is referring to the church. But again, it would be because 
of our understanding of the truth of the identity of Jesus. In other words, the gates of Hades, death will not conquer the church. Why? Because we have the truth. We know the truth about who Jesus is. We know the truth about the identity of Jesus Christ. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And our authority rests in that. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Again, that's founded in the truth. How is it that we can declare access to the kingdom of God? Only based upon the true identity of Jesus Christ. We can say to people, if you believe in Christ, your sins are forgiven. And we can say that confidently because we know who Jesus is. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what about discipline in the church? Which again, I think is implied here. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Or, or whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, it's all based on the truth about who Jesus is. Church authority... is grounded in God's truth. I don't have, as a preacher of the Gospel, some kind of innate authority or supremacy. My authority um, depends on whether or not what I say and do is consistent with the Word of God. My authority just goes so far as I'm, I'm in agreement with this. Because this is where the real authority is. Jesus is where the real authority is. I have none except delegated authority. And that's the same true for all of us, all Christians. So it's the truth about who Jesus is that underlies all of these things. The building up of the church perseverance of the church. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Victory over death. The proclamation of access to the kingdom and the exercise of the functions of the church, such as discipline. All grounded in the truth. The truth of who Jesus is. And that's why Paul says in Timothy, the church... The house of God, the church, is the pillar and ground of the truth. So the ultimate foundation of the church, I mean, it's, it's, it's fine and even scriptural to use the analogy of the, the apostles as the foundation. Again, that's Ephesians 2.20. And then you get over into Revelation and you find the New Jerusalem where their names are written on the, the layers of the foundation. That's scriptural. That's a scriptural analogy. But if we're going to talk about ultimately, who's the ultimate foundation of the church? What is the church built on? It's the truth. And that's the very reason that that can even be said about the apostles. Not because of who they were, but because they taught the truth. It's the apostolic doctrine. 
that the church continued steadfastly in in the early days of the church. And the apostolic doctrine that is the real issue because it's truth. Truth. So the ultimate foundation of the church, Jesus. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's, it's all about who He is. Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, that's right. <laughs> and my church is going to be built on that. My church is going to be victorious on that. My church is going to function on that. It's all about Him and who He really is. Would you stand? There's, there's no other issue that you could come up with. There is no other issue more important than this one. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you believe Him to be? And for the church, we already believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that truth should be central to everything that we do as individuals, and as a body. It is all about Him. Let's pray. Bob, would you mind leading us in a word of prayer, please? This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.